Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Judge Kavanaugh is one of the finest people that I've ever known. Finest people that I've ever known. Brett Kavanaugh has a reputation as being a prince of a man, frankly, other than this. But come on, this is a good, decent person. I feel for this this man's daughters. Does anyone really believe the story would have surfaced if Brett Kavanaugh had pledged allegiance to Roe v. Wade? Of course it wouldn't have. This all has the whiff of a political smear masquerading as a sexual assault allegation. It was effectively an attempted at political assassination of a character. Should that deny us chances later in life, even for a Supreme Court job, a presidency of the United States, or you name it. Yeah. How accountable are we for high school actions when this is clearly a disputable high school action? Yeah. What happens at Georgetown Prep stays at Georgetown Prep. That's been a good thing for all of us, I think. Yeah. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 66 of Intercepted. I think we did a fantastic job in Puerto Rico. We're still helping Puerto Rico. The governor is an excellent guy, and he is very happy with the job we've done. We have put billions and billions of dollars into Puerto Rico, and uh, it, it was a very tough one. Don't forget, their electric plant was dead before the hurricane. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria ravaging Puerto Rico. We still do not know the exact death toll. In fact, it's continuing to rise. But it does appear at this point to be between three and 5,000 people. Donald Trump, of course, now infamously disputes that. And he has, in fact, praised himself for how he handled Puerto Rico. We've gotten a lot of uh, receptivity, a lot of thanks for the job we've done in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Trump is rightly being derided, attacked, blasted for both his atrocious response or lack thereof to the hurricane a year ago and also his continued inaccurate, offensive, inhumane public pronouncements. But I have to say, it does a great disservice to the people of Puerto Rico to place all of the focus on Trump and his administration when we look at who is responsible for this death and destruction. The reality is that U.S. colonialist history in Puerto Rico, the laws that the United States has imposed on this island nation, and the ravenous Wall Street vultures that have descended 
at different times on Puerto Rico, all of these forces and factors have played a major role in this catastrophe. The disaster in Puerto Rico was certainly not just the result of the power of the hurricanes and extreme weather. It was also man-made. It is, in large part, the result of colonialist policies. Even before Hurricanes Maria and Irma hit Puerto Rico, there was a major crisis that was largely caused by imperial policies set in Washington, combined with a vicious neoliberal economic attack aimed at looting Puerto Rico and its people. This is a story that is actually hundreds of years in the making. It involves Christopher Columbus, the Spanish Empire, the Spanish-American War, the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico, the illegal annexation of Puerto Rico, the revolutionary struggle for independence, and the violent crushing of those efforts. Today, we're going to dig deep into the history of Puerto Rico and of those who have profited from its colonial status and continue to profit from disasters, both natural and manufactured. Puerto Ricans are, of course, U.S. citizens. Puerto Rico has a governor. But in reality, Puerto Rico is today ruled by a board, a board appointed by the president of the United States and made up overwhelmingly of non-Puerto Ricans. This has been the reality since 2016, when Barack Obama signed into law the PROMESA Act. That stands for the Puerto Rico Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act. Uh, through some amazing work by our Treasury Department, our legislative staff, and a bipartisan effort uh, in both the House and the Senate, uh, we finally have legislation that at least is going to give Puerto Rico the capacity, the opportunity uh, to get out from under this lingering uncertainty with respect to their debt, uh, to start stabilizing government services and to start growing again. That law created this small council of political appointees who would take charge of restructuring Puerto Rico's debt, which all things considered, it's massive. It's $120 billion. What this effectively means is that this political board of non-Puerto Ricans is making decisions and setting policies that the people of Puerto Rico have no voice in whatsoever. By the time PROMESA was signed into law, Puerto Rico's fiscal crisis was already exploding. Puerto Rico owed more than $70 billion in debt and more than $50 billion in unfunded pensions. On orders from Washington, the Puerto Rican government slashed funding for health care and public transportation services. More than 30,000 public sector workers were fired and 100 schools closed. Later in the show, we're going to be joined by my Intercept colleague, Naomi Klein. She's done some groundbreaking reporting from Puerto Rico over the past year. She also has a new book out about Puerto Rico. But first, we turn to journalist Juan Gonzalez. He is the former New York Daily News columnist and still the co-host of Democracy Now!, Juan was born in Ponce, Puerto Rico, but he grew up in the United States. As a young man, Juan was a leader of the Young Lords, a revolutionary political movement with similarities to the Black Panthers. Juan eventually became a journalist and then for many, many years wrote a weekly column. He is one of the foremost scholars on the history of Puerto Rico, 
its battles for independence, as well as its current political, economic, and social realities. Juan is the author of many books, among them Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, Roll Down Your Window, Stories of a Forgotten America, and most recently Reclaiming Gotham, Bill de Blasio, and the Movement to End America's Tale of Two Cities. Juan is currently a professor of journalism at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Juan Gonzalez, welcome back to Intercepted. Oh, my pleasure to be here, Jeremy. I want to do a deep dive into Puerto Rico's history with you, but I want to start with some of the latest developments. Um, Of course, it's the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis. It's the one-year anniversary of the hurricane hitting Puerto Rico. And something that's gotten no attention, I haven't seen it, is that a report was issued last month, the final report of what we can loosely call the Puerto Rico Financial Control Board. This was set up by PROMESA, which is the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act. I want to talk about the results of that report and the findings of it. But first, explain PROMESA and who this board is, who appointed it, what it does. In Puerto Rico, they call it La Junta. And uh, it is now essentially the political body in charge of Puerto Rico. Uh, There's still a governor. There's still a legislature, but no act of that governor or the legislature, no budget, no spending can be done without the approval of the board. And in fact, the board is constantly in battle with the governor. Just recently just told the governor that a whole bunch of his budget proposals are not acceptable. So the PROMESA board is essentially an outside control board that Congress set up to run Puerto Rico to essentially deal with the debt crisis and supposedly put Puerto Rico back on a, on a firm economic footing. However, it is deeply unpopular. It's made up mostly of appointees from the United States, and it is dictating the future of Puerto Rico and is also negotiating with the bondholders over the $73 billion in bond debt that is still hanging over the people of Puerto Rico. And the control board's expenses are completely paid by the government of Puerto Rico. By act of Congress, Puerto Rico must accept the control board and must pay for it. What's the point then of Puerto Rico having a governor or any form of a government? Well, that's that's the problem. It's all, at this stage, they're all puppets because no one can do anything. They're micromanaging every part of the economy. They are the ones that have essentially ordered that the electric company of Puerto Rico be privatized. They are the ones that are ordering that all... Christmas bonuses of employees of the government be done away with. They're the ones that are ordering the cuts in the pension funds for all retirees, government retirees. They're essentially a dictatorial body in charge of Puerto Rico's finances. It ended forever the myth that Puerto Rico is a self-governing territory of the United States. Did this have bipartisan support when it passed in 2016? Yes, it did. Unfortunately, there were quite a few Democrats who believed that this was the only way to assure some kind of resolution of Puerto Rico's financial crisis because at the time, Puerto Rico had no ability to declare bankruptcy because its power to declare bankruptcy was eliminated by Congress in 1984 in a special legislation so that the government was faced with the fact that it was bankrupt but could not officially go to a court 
and have a judge decide who gets paid what in the bankruptcy proceedings. So what PROMESA did do, one positive aspect, is that it did create a form of bankruptcy that Puerto Rico could use, which it now is using to deal with the bondholders. However, it put an outside board in charge of that, in charge of negotiating the methods of how Puerto Rico would get out of bankruptcy. Now, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, on August 20th, the Financial Control Board released a 600 page report that purported to investigate the impact and root causes of the financial crisis as it affected Puerto Rico. Right. You've been pouring over this 600-page report. What does it say, and what's your analysis of it? Well, it's fascinating. The report was issued by an outside firm, an investigative firm called Cobra and Kim. The control board paid $3 million dollars for this investigation. <laughs> Supposedly, the goal was to figure out how the hell did Puerto Rico ever get in the shape that it was with so much debt? Who was responsible? Were there any things that were done illegally or unethically? How did Puerto Rico get into this much debt at what point? What year are we talking about? Well, the bulk of the debt, the $73 billion in debt, was contracted from about 2004 to 2018. There was there was a good-sized debt before that, but it wasn't anywhere near. It exploded, really, after 2006, which was when the real economic recession in Puerto Rico developed. It's, the island has been for 10 years now in economic decline. This is against the backdrop of scores of lawsuits by bondholders claiming that other kinds of bonds are illegal, that they never should have been issued in the first place. So there's all this litigation in, in the bankruptcy court now, in the federal court in Puerto Rico, basically, trying to sort out who's in line, who's the first in line, who's the second in line, who's the third in line for whatever money Puerto Rico is going to pay out to bondholders. And I actually believe in reading the report, it was more aimed to provide the bondholders a sort of a map of where they could possibly file lawsuits and which lawsuits might uh, have more credence than to actually get to the root of the problem. Explain how the crisis was created in your research investigation. Well, in my research, and interestingly, the early part of the report, which deals with the history of Puerto Rico's economic relations with the United States, backs up a lot of what's already been known. One is that Puerto Rico had a structural problem, financial problem, as a result of policies adopted by Congress over many decades. For example, Medicaid reimbursements. Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, but Congress for decades now has capped how much money Puerto Rico can get from the federal government for Medicaid reimbursement compared to all other states. Puerto Rico gets far less money in Medicaid reimbursements than even the poorest state in the union, Mississippi, even though the income levels in Puerto Rico are dramatically less than Mississippi, that has meant that the Puerto Rico government, to provide health insurance for the poor, has to have much more money spent than would be spent by any other state. Every single federal program that is available to the other states has always been capped at a far lesser level by the Congress. That's one example. The other example, of course, is the Jones Act, which is the shipping laws that mean that anything imported into Puerto Rico costs more uh, because it must be on a U.S. flagship and a U.S. made ship and with a U.S. crew. So that costs about $500 million a year in extra cost to the people of Puerto Rico for the shipping laws. When the financial problem got really bad after the 
tax exemption for a lot of corporations was removed in 2006. I'm sorry, 1996, but then it phased out in 2006. That's when all the manufacturers started leaving Puerto Rico, and then the crisis got even worse, and the government just could not meet its bills. So what do we find? This report states that about $46 billion in the debt that Puerto Rico contracted over several years was actually just money borrowed to pay back past debts. 70% of the $46 billion was money borrowed to pay previous bonds. It wasn't to do anything new in Puerto Rico, build anything new. It was like, you know, you borrow money to pay your credit card. <laughs> you know, that's what it was. The Puerto Rico government, faced with the structural problems created by its colonial relationship, was desperate for money. And Wall Street say, we'll try all these instruments. You know, we'll, we'll lend you money to pay us back. <laughs> and who, who were the players from Wall Street that were you at, the, at the lead? City Group, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, all the major players Brothers. Were, the, were the ones, Lehman Brothers, were the ones who actually kept coming up with new esoteric financial instruments for Puerto Rico to solve what was essentially a structural problem created by Congress. And how were they doing this? They were, were they lobbying in Puerto well, Rico? What, were they... What they, yeah, what they did is, for instance, uh, Lehman Brothers is great creation. Puerto Rico's constitution limits the amount of money that you can borrow. Like any, uh, this is true of any state or municipality. Your bonding capacity is usually based on the value of your property. So Lehman Brothers came up with the idea, let's create a sales tax. Before 2006, Puerto Rico had no sales tax. And then we're going to earmark a portion of the sales tax to securitize new bonds that won't be counted as part of your overall government uh, borrowing capacity because it's a whole new, it's a revenue bond securitized by the sales tax. Today, the sales tax in Puerto Rico is 11.5%. <laughs> a huge portion of it just uh, set aside to pay the bondholders, the new bonds that were created, which were called the sales tax revenue bonds or COFINA. So they just created a whole new instrument, Lehman Brothers. Of course, Lehman Brothers was doing this in 2006 and seven, and we all know where Lehman Brothers went in 2008 uh, and uh, because of these kind of shady operations. And then Lehman Brothers came up with the idea of also doing what's called capital appreciation bonds. What's a capital appreciation bond? You borrow $85 million in 2007. For 49 years, you pay no principal. You pay no interest. So for 49 years, the $85 million you borrow, you don't pay anything on. At the end of the 49 years, though, the interest has been accumulating on top of the original principal. After 49 years, you owe $1.1 billion on $85 million that you originally borrowed. That is a complete payday loan for governments. You borrow money today that you don't pay for 50 years, but at the end of the 50 years, the amount that you owe, everyone knows you won't be able to pay. When Lehman Brothers would come in with ideas like this, where are they making their money? They're making their monies originally on the fees for putting together the deal. Fees for the lawyers, their fees for the underwriters. So they get their fees up front. So the more bonds you issue, the more money Wall Street makes. And if you're issuing a new bond to pay off the old one, they made money on the original one and they're making money on the new one. So they make money off the top 
on their fees. All of this is in the report. Mm -hmm. However, and here's the amazing thing, why I believe the entire report is a whitewash. Congress gave to the PROMESA board subpoena power to do an investigation of the finances of Puerto Rico. The report acknowledges we had subpoena power. However, we chose to do everything with voluntary interviews. They interviewed over 120 people as part of the report with no transcripts. So they interviewed all these people, and then they didn't take minutes of their interviews. Did they interview the people from Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers? Yes, they interviewed the people from the Puerto Rican government. They interviewed people from the business people. They interviewed bondholders. They interviewed the issuers. They interviewed everybody who was involved. No transcripts. No transcripts. Nobody under oath. So basically, it was all on a voluntary basis, what you come to tell us, and there was no actual investigation using the subpoena power that they had. Let me give you one example of why I think the subpoena power would have been important. According to the Puerto Rico government people that were interviewed by this investigation group, Goldman Sachs was essentially trolling the halls of the Puerto Rico legislature, trying to convince the elected officials to do what's called credit swaps on their bonds. That's a, this is another esoteric. It's like collateralized debt obligations. Credit swaps is when a city or a public entity borrows a whole lot of money at a variable interest rate, but then they want to make sure that if the interest rates go up, they don't have to pay more. So they do an arrangement, a bet with the counterparty that the counterparty will assume the money if interest rates go up. But what happened? Throughout the 2000s, interest rates kept going down. <laughs> so all of these swaps that Goldman Sachs was pushing ended up being a gravy train for Wall Street. Puerto Rico paid, according to this report, over $1 billion in termination fees on bad credit default swaps. A billion dollars. Now, Goldman was going around everywhere trying to sell these swaps and even offering money up front. At one point, they told the Puerto Rico government, if you'll do this credit swap, we'll give you $80 million off the bat. Another time, they went and said, if you'll do this credit swap, we'll give you $100 million in cash up front. This investigation clearly says Goldman Sachs was actively peddling this. So let me read to you what the report says about when they interviewed a Goldman Sachs official. This is not, again, this is not under oath. This is just an interview. Quote, we interviewed the lead banker on Goldman's Puerto Rico team in 2005, who was identified by officials in the Puerto Rico government and in contemporaneous documents as having proposed the legislation or advocated for the swaps. When we asked this senior Goldman investment banker if he was involved in drafting or commenting on the 2005 legislation, he told us he did not recall. We also asked him if someone on his team would have been designated to comment on or the draft legislation. He told us he did not recall. When we asked the senior Goldman investment banker about the geo basis swap specifically, he told us he did not recall the specifics of any swap transaction, including where an issuer received upfront money as part of a swap and did not recall any pitches Goldman made in connection with swaps. So Goldman does not recall anything <laughs> about what they were doing in Puerto Rico to peddle this uh, suspect debt. They just basically did a voluntary 
interview situation here with all of these people, and they didn't use the subpoena power that Congress gave them. That tells me that they didn't want to find out uh, what was legal and what was not legal about how the debt in Puerto Rico ballooned to the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history. I'm sure I, I and anyone listening knows the answer to this, but um, was anyone held accountable, sanctioned anything for these actions in Puerto Rico over this period you're describing? Well, UBS was held criminally liable for peddling a specific type of bond to people in Puerto Rico. There were many Puerto Rican retirees who ended up losing all of their savings because UBS was pushing them all into a certain group of funds that they were going to benefit from. There's been many, uh, several fines levied against UBS for its activities, but it's only on the portion of the huge debt that they sold to Puerto Ricans, mm -hmm. not that they sold all across the United States and that's in every every major municipal bond fund in the country that no one's been held accountable for. So how did uh, Puerto Rico's economy then implode? How did this impact the bankruptcy of Puerto Rico um, well, and the state well, it was simply in? Happened, what simply happened was that for more than a decade, Puerto Rico's budget was in huge deficits and the way the government kept running the government is by borrowing more money. <laughs> they kept borrowing more money to pay off the past bondholders and to paper over the debt. But eventually the debt became unsustainable uh, because it, the Puerto Rico not only owes $73 billion to bondholders, it owes $49 billion in unfunded pensions to its current and uh, retired government workers. So the total is north of $122 billion. That is the total debt of Puerto Rico right now, $122 billion. You put that in context of Detroit, which was the largest previous bankruptcy in American history. Detroit was $18 billion. Puerto Rico's $123 billion total debt. It's a magnitude of uh, financial collapse that's never been seen before in American government history. How did all of this impact the state that Puerto Rico was in when Hurricane Maria hit and the subsequent deaths and lack of any true rebuilding of the infrastructure by the U.S. government in Puerto Rico? Well, clearly, the fact that the island had been for so long, basically, you know, uh, putting Band-Aids on everything uh, because they had no money to really spend, meant that the electrical system was in disrepair. The water system had not had major investments. And so as a result, when the hurricane hit, uh, the physical infrastructure of the of the island was paralyzed, not only paralyzed, but then it took over uh, almost a year for everyone to get electricity back. The Puerto Rican government, since it wasn't paying its bills, nobody wanted to do business with them. <laughs> nobody wanted to sign contracts with them because they said, well, how can we sign a contract with you? How you haven't paid anybody else. How do we know we're going to get paid? <laughs> so they had a problem being able to respond effectively because they were essentially bankrupt at the time. What I feel is the wrong narrative is that Puerto Rico brought this on itself. That is not accurate. The reality is even this report recognizes that there were structural problems as a direct result of U.S. colonial policy in Puerto Rico that created a structural imbalance that had to be remedied. Wall Street stepped in with garbage debt to paper it over for 10 or 15 years, but sooner or later, it was going to become evident 
that the economic model of Puerto Rico that Congress has created and controls is not sustainable for the people of the island. And again, I mean, this this isn't just Trump administration policy. This is U.S. government policy and approach toward Puerto Rico for quite a long time. In 1898, the United States officially invades Puerto Rico. What was the mindset at that point of the U.S. government toward Puerto Rico? Obviously, it's the Spanish-American War. Puerto Rico was not really the main prize of the Spanish-American War. It was really Cuba and the Philippines. The difference is that the others, uh, the Philippines was eventually allowed its independence as a result of a long guerrilla, two long guerrilla wars. And uh, Puerto Rico remained a United States territorial possession. Throughout most of the 20th century, the governors of Puerto Rico were Americans appointed by the president. 1898 till 1946, there were all Anglo-American governors appointed directly by the president to run the island. By the period of the Roosevelt administration, they began to realize this was going out of fashion, this direct colonial control. So in 1946, they appointed the first Puerto Rican governor, Jesus Pinero, and then In 1948, they allowed Puerto Ricans to elect their own governor. Puerto Rico, strategic Caribbean island, climaxes half a century as an American territory with the inauguration of the first governor elected by the people of Puerto Rico. In San Juan, the chief justice administers the oath to Governor Luis Munoz Marin, whose popular Democratic Party won a sweeping victory last November. In his inaugural, Governor Munoz Marin hails the island's new democracy, where Puerto Rico's people may, within the smallness of their territory, realize the greatness of their destiny. But then in 1952, in the wake of the creation of the United Nations, it became a real international embarrassment to the United States that it was still holding a colonial territory. So they then worked with Munoz Marin, to establish a new compact, which was called the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, which was created in 1952, that was supposedly granting the people of Puerto Rico self-government. So then the disguised form of colonialism was created, which is the Commonwealth, where the Puerto Rican people supposedly had self-government, but all of the acts that created the Commonwealth made it patently clear that Puerto Rico was still a territory of the United States which in the words of the Supreme Court in the insular decisions, belongs to but is not a part of the United States. Puerto Ricans were still colonial subjects. That idea of the Commonwealth as a form of voluntary union with the United States persisted from 1952 until the creation of PROMESA. From 1952 on until 2016, the world was led to believe that Puerto Ricans had freely chosen their relationship of commonwealth to the United States. The United States exercises complete sovereignty over Puerto Rico. That means Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. It's subject to the whim of Congress. And so Congress then exercised that whim when they created the Financial Control Board to oversee the island. And now it's stuck with a mess (laughs) that its own policies created And most members of Congress don't even want to be bothered with Puerto Rico. However, the financial crisis on the island has gotten so big that it threatens the viability of the municipal bond market of the United States. So therefore, Wall Street wants a solution. (laughs) Wall Street is afraid that if Puerto Rico is allowed to get out from all under this debt, then any state 
will start trying to get out from under its debt. Illinois or any of these other states that are in huge debt may then try to use the precedent of Puerto Rico to get out from under its bond debt. So the colonial situation of Puerto Rico created the problem, but Congress has no will to end the colony. Wall Street is demanding a solution, but the solution that they want is to crush the Puerto Rican people even more. And so you have all of these forces trying to press their agenda and no clear solution in sight. Given this history that you're describing, why do you believe that Puerto Rican independence wasn't achieved? I mean, you have you have remarkable fierce resistance in the modern history of Puerto Rico, particularly uh, after the U.S. invades and then creates these legal structures that you're talking about. You had amazing figures, Pedro Albizo Campos and uh, Filiberto Ojedo Rios, and attacks on the U.S. Congress, an attempt to kill President Truman. A nationalist uprising in American Puerto Rico in the West Indies is linked with the attempt on President Truman's life. Two of them attempted to assassinate President Truman in Blair House, where he is staying during repairs to the White House. Approaching from opposite directions, they open fire on the police guards. The president's doctor hurries to attend two wounded guards, one of whom has since died. While traces are removed, the FBI... I mean, maybe explain well, that, but like well, the sort of fierce resistance, but also why it never succeeded. Why well, I think the Puerto Rico independence movement never succeeded because Puerto Rico was the colony of the most powerful country in the world. And as a result, even as a colony it got better treatment than the colonies of France and England, you know, than India or Pakistan or, or Algeria or whatever, because it became a colony when the United States was a rising empire in the world. The economic level of its people was generally higher than those of other colonial peoples. Because the United States, especially after the Cuban Revolution, was deathly afraid that the idea of the Cuban Revolution would spread throughout Latin America. Puerto Rico was needed as an example of another way, <laughs> you know, an example of capitalism succeeding. So the United States invested heavily in making Puerto Rico a comfortable colony, a less obvious scene of exploitation. In addition to that, the Luis Muñoz Marín Popular Party was a social democratic party. Many of the programs that he developed, especially with uh, FDR's last governor in Puerto Rico, Rexford Tugwell, who was clear socialist, were to create state-owned industries. That's why you have a, a state-owned electric company. That's why you have a state-owned water company. That's why you had a state-owned government development bank. There was a lot of New Deal, uh, you know, Tennessee Valley Authority type programs that Munoz Marin implemented in Puerto Rico that meant that the people felt that the government was at least addressing their economic needs. And so, in essence, the Munoz Marin social democracy co-opted a lot of the fervor of the independence movement in addition to the massive repression of the independence movement. In the 1950s, it was illegal to fly a Puerto Rican flag in Puerto Rico. You could be arrested for flying a Puerto Rican flag. You could be arrested for advocating for independence. There was a complete repression of the independence movement in Puerto Rico in the 1950s. So all of that means that the independence movement gradually waned. In addition, increasingly... As more and more people tried to come to the United States, the fact that Puerto Ricans had U.S. citizenship meant that they had easy entry back and forth into the United States. Look at all the people that come to the U.S. and are 
undocumented. Puerto Ricans come to the U.S. and they're documented from the moment they step in. They don't have to worry about that. So U.S. citizenship is like a Trump citizenship in the world. If you have it, <laughs> you're treated differently. So Puerto Ricans re realized that there were certain benefits to the colony. And so they gradually adapted to the conditions. However, here's the problem. All of that said, Puerto Rico is still a separate country. Right? It's a territory of the United States, but it's still a separate country. Because it's an island, because it has always spoken Spanish, and therefore has a complete linguistic and cultural difference. So how do you reconcile that with being part of the United States? How can Puerto Rico become a state? Every state that's been admitted to the union, by the time it became a state, was a majority or a plurality of white Anglos including Hawaii and including Alaska, which were the last two to come into the Union. The settlers went out into the territories, settled them, and then petitioned for statehood. That's how states became states. The Anglos never settled Puerto Rico. 118 years later, 90% of the people are still Spanish-speaking. So Americans never settled Puerto Rico. Therefore, Puerto Rico never changed its culture and its language and its traditions. So therefore, you have the problem that Puerto Rico is part of the United States, but it's completely different from the United States. That's the unsolvable issue that Congress has to deal with uh, and that the Puerto Rican people have to deal with. Well, Juan Gonzalez, thanks so much for sharing all of the history analysis, particularly also of the latest developments there. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us again on Intercepted. Thank you. Juan Gonzalez is a veteran journalist born in Puerto Rico, longtime columnist at the New York Daily News, still the co-host of Democracy Now! I have to say all of Juan's books and journalism are great, but do make sure to check out Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. Juan is currently a professor of journalism at Rutgers University. As we all know, last month, the death toll in Puerto Rico made it back into the news after an official report asserted that nearly 3,000 Puerto Ricans had died as a result of Hurricanes Maria and Irma and their aftermath. Last week, it became a media flashpoint when Trump falsely tweeted the following. 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really large numbers like 3,000. Donald Trump went on to tweet, quote, This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. Notice how he says, I was raising these billions of dollars as though he's not president and he's just running a private company and he's doing some charity. Anyway, then the FEMA administrator, Brock Long, made the rounds on the Sunday shows this past weekend to defend Trump. You know, the other thing that goes on, there's all kinds of studies on this that we take a look at. Spousal abuse goes through the roof. You can't blame spousal abuse, you know, after a disaster on anybody. Puerto Rico's governor formally updated the death toll from the hurricanes to 2,975 people in August. 
after multiple news outlets and universities demonstrated that thousands of people died during the days and weeks after the hurricanes. A Harvard study, meanwhile, estimates that the death toll is likely closer to 5,000 people. In response to Trump's tweets and accusations, San Juan Mayor Carmen Cruz had this to say. President Trump continues to be on his high horse and does not realize the mistakes that were made, and he doesn't take care of them. He never got it. This was never about politics. This was always about saving lives. To him, this is about positioning himself as a great savior. Well, you know, he isn't. Before Hurricanes Irma and Maria hit Puerto Rico, it was already in the midst of another disaster. As a result of the massive debt we talked about earlier, these neoliberal economic policies imposed by Washington, Puerto Rico was on a path to privatize its public assets, already having privatized its airports and highway toll system. Puerto Rico was already in a state of shock when these record-breaking hurricanes hit the island. Joining me now is Naomi Klein. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. She is, of course, the author of The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Naomi also has a new book out on Puerto Rico called The Battle for Paradise. Puerto Rico takes on the disaster capitalists. Naomi has also recently been appointed the inaugural Gloria Steinem Chair of Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. Naomi, welcome back to Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be with you. Also nice to have you here in person. Yeah, it's the, actually the first time we've done this in person. I want to dig deep into talking about Puerto Rico, not just Trump's comments, but an overall view of what's happening right now in Puerto Rico. But before we talk about Hurricane Maria, I, I wanted to ask you about the financial crisis that Puerto Rico was in prior to all of this. And Puerto Rico owed more than $70 billion in debt and had more than $50 billion in unfunded pensions. How was the Puerto Rican government and the state of Puerto Rico, what condition was it in prior to Hurricane Maria regarding these issues? Well, that's a really critical question, and it, it has a lot to do with these much-debated numbers about the deaths post-Maria, um, you know, whether we're talking about the 3,000 figure or the 5,000 figure, because the vast majority of those deaths had a huge amount to do with failing public infrastructure. And the failing public infrastructure in Puerto Rico had everything to do with this economic war that was being waged on Puerto Rico well before Hurricane Maria. You know, it's tough to know when to to begin this story, right? I mean, you, you could begin it 500 years ago. You could begin, you know, the story when the U.S. took over from the Spanish in Puerto Rico. But, you know, for the sake of argument, let's begin with the most recent economic 
crisis in Puerto Rico, which is 2006, when a, uh, a series of tax breaks that had lured American companies, they had been phased out and they were finally phased out in 2006. And so you had capital flight. And the government of Puerto Rico has been shut down after it ran out of money following a dispute between lawmakers and the island's governor. Puerto Rico's 1,600 state schools have been shut, leaving half a million students and 40,000 teachers with no classes. Nearly 100,000 government workers have been temporarily left without jobs. So this is 2006. And then, and that's a significant year because it is right before the global financial crisis. So Puerto Rico suffered this one-two punch where their economy started crashing before the world economy started crashing. But of course, they were impacted by the world economy crashing. So that's when you have this debt crisis that you refer to, the, the, the debt exploding. When you say that there was this economic war against Puerto Rico prior to this, and we're, we're talking right now about um, 2006, some of the significant events then, mm -hmm. wh who were the perpetrators or the aggressors and what were they seeking? You know, I've written a lot in the past about how economic shocks, economic crises are so often exploited, not to fix the underlying reason behind the economic crisis, not to create a actual sustainable economy that is going to serve the interests of the people who live there. But just in a very opportunistic way, you use the economic crisis to push through the, the, the wish list of policies that rear their head and have reared their head through the whole neoliberal period, you know, dating back to the 1970s. So it's privatization of public assets and the profits that flow from, you know, private players getting control over a previously public monopoly, other attacks on, on the public sector opening up to private players, you know, all of it, deregulation, privatization, economic austerity. So that's what happened in Puerto Rico. They had an economic crisis, much like Greece had an economic crisis after, after the financial crisis, and much like in Greece, in Puerto Rico, it was exploited in very opportunistic ways, not to deliver a healthy economy for Puerto Ricans, but for, for other people to profit. And so this really culminated in the creation of the Financial Oversight Board, where Puerto, Rico, Puerto Ricans really lost control over their economy. And the governing structure was all about paying Puerto Rico's debtors rather than serving the interests of Puerto Ricans. And in the name of fiscal responsibility and paying off their creditors, this brutal austerity program was introduced. And that has a huge amount to do with why Puerto Rico was as vulnerable to these dual hurricanes, because it wasn't just Maria, it was also Irma, why their public infrastructure was as brittle as it was, right? And so, you know, when Trump says, it's not all my fault, you know, these aren't deaths that were just from the wind and the waves, he, in a way, Okay, I don't want this to be taken out of context, but it is true that the responsibility for these deaths cannot just, you know, be put on the Trump administration. And indeed, it is bipartisan, like so much else. It was Obama and Congress pre-Trump that created the Financial Oversight Board that imposed this regime of brutal economic austerity on Puerto Rico, an entirely bipartisan project that Obama signed off on. And, you know, what we see now with Florence, you know, just this week, and what we saw last year with Hurricane Harvey in, in Houston is just how important it is for there to be a functioning public sphere when it is tested 
by these record-breaking storms, right? You know, whether 911 is working the way it should be working, whether first responders, you know, have the resources that they need. And in so many cases, they don't. But in Puerto Rico, it was so much worse. And it was so much worse because of the stained economic assault. And the reason for that is not about the corruption of Puerto Rico's local elites, which is, you know, what we often hear in the analysis here. It has everything to do with colonialism. Things were done in Puerto Rico after the financial crisis that were not done in the mainland. Who who are the greatest beneficiaries of the way that the Trump administration handled Puerto Rico and the greatest beneficiaries of the fact that this massive hurricane did so much destruction? You talked earlier about you know, I mean, I remember from reading this in the Shock Doctrine, the, the this notion uh, that has been popularized by the neocons that you know history ultimately will be written by the people who are able to seize the moment of a crisis and realize that that's the moment to push through your agenda. So who's mm-hmm. who's benefiting from the hurricane and the way that the administration responded? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that when Trump used this phrase, the unsung. The unsung success in Puerto Rico. I think that Puerto Rico was an incredible unsung success. Uh, Texas, we have been given A pluses for. Uh, Florida, we've been given A pluses for. I think, in a certain way, the best job we did was Puerto Rico, but nobody would understand. And I thought, well, you know, I think there are corners. Uh, of Wall Street, where they are, they'll be singing the praises of what the Trump administration has done for many years to come, because they are benefiting precisely from the failure, right? Because it creates its own logic. I'll give you an example around electricity. There started to be talk of privatizing Puerto Rico's electricity grid before Maria even made landfall. You started to see speculation in the business press that you know this was clearly going to going to mean this would be the moment to to, to privatize. Puerto Rico was already in the midst of a pretty classic experience of what I've called the shock doctrine before, right? Using the economic crisis to push through this agenda of privatization and deregulation and austerity. Before Maria hit, there there was a lot of pushback. And so the, you know, the, it was already on the agenda of the Financial Oversight Board, what in Puerto Rico is called the Junta, to privatize the electricity system, to cut the budget of the University of Puerto Rico in half, to close down you know, an additional 300 schools. But they were facing resistance. On the May Day before Hurricane Maria hit in September, there was the second largest protest in Puerto Rico, and it was against austerity. I think it was a couple hundred thousand people on the streets saying no to the junta, calling for Roseo's resignation, saying the debt is illegitimate, that the debt needs to be audited. And saying no to austerity. You had a student strike at the University of Puerto Rico that lasted for almost three months that shut down the university against precisely this type of austerity. And then Maria hits. Hurricane Maria ripped through Puerto Rico, making landfall as a Category 4 hurricane with winds of up to 155 miles per hour. And all of these ideas come roaring back with a vengeance. So in the case of Katrina, you know, which you and I both covered, they kind of came up with the plan right after. In the case of Puerto Rico, it's even more insidious because the plan was literally already there. The plan was the playbook of the Financial Oversight Board. They had been able to do a lot of it, but they hadn't been able to do all of it. So they didn't even need to do any more planning because they had it all ready to go. And they just pushed it through in this moment where most people on the island still don't have electricity. 
So while this mass displacement is going on, you have these same ideas. The the Secretary of Education announces there's going to be a closure of 300 schools. That's in addition to, you know, a recent closure of, I think, 165 schools. It's extraordinary. And it's just the most blatant exploitation of people's emotional trauma and the fact that they are in this state of emergency. And it's so hard to fight back under these circumstances. That said, Puerto Ricans are fighting back. I mean, the Puerto Rican teachers have gone on strike, you know, have been in the streets opposing plans to privatize their the education system. We know that there's been communication between New Orleans and the Puerto Rican Secretary of Education about, you know, how New Orleans went about pushing through an unprecedented privatization program of education in the aftermath of Katrina. Same thing is happening in Puerto Rico. They introduced a law to open up the school system to charter schools. Puerto Ricans have resisted this up until this point, but in this moment of trauma and, and emergency, they were able to get that through. And what, what's happening with the public utilities in Puerto Rico? I mean, so the people who stand to profit the most are, you know, people who would be getting a piece of Puerto Rico's, you know, public infrastructure. Puerto Rico has a huge publicly owned electricity utility that though it has a huge debt, still makes money. And so it looks like it's going to be auctioned off in various pieces that the public will be stuck with the debt. The Puerto Ricans will be stuck with the debt, but the profitable pieces of their utility will be uh, sold off to, to private players. So they'll be making money there. The whole charter school industry, which Betsy DeVos is intimately connected to, they're descending on Puerto Rico. You know, there's other pieces of public infrastructure that it looks like are going to be sold off, you know, highways, the ferry between Vieques and the mainland. And and then there's this other piece of it, which is, you know, we've heard about a lot of it around the, the cryptocurrency guys, right? But there is also this other realm of profiteering going on that has to do with tax evasion, which has to do with so-called high net worth individuals that are moving to Puerto Rico because the Puerto Rican government was offering as an incentive to relocate your primary residence, relocate the address of your hedge fund, of your business to Puerto Rico, and then you don't pay capital gains tax, don't pay tax on dividends, interest. I mean, it's the whole you know, ball game. So if you are a financial speculator of some kind and all you need is access to data, it's a pretty sweet deal. And you only have to stay there for... How many days of the year is it's basically winter, <laughs> you know? Is this the kind of series of events or moment in history where you think it would? I'm just talking about your sense. I'm not asking you to speak for all of Puerto Rico. Do you have a sense that it's going to impact people's views one way or the other on independence? You know, a lot of people in Puerto Rico talk about Maria as this sort of unveiling that it unveiled a lot of pre-existing crises. And this is true in so many ways, including the poverty that was already there. You know, the winds just ripped the roof off of houses. And, and what people saw was just how poor their neighbors were and how precarious their lives were. But there's no doubt that one of the things that was unveiled in Trump's, you know, paper towel throwing and continuing on to his denial of the deaths is just the complete disdain with which the U.S. government treats Puerto Ricans and the fact that they are not, you know, considered by by any means U.S. citizens. They're not treated like U.S. citizens. So I think there are different interests in Puerto Rico that are latching onto that. I do know that I heard a lot of talk when I was there about the importance of sovereignty, but not just political sovereignty in the way this debate is usually 
or traditionally debated of just sovereignty being seen as something that you achieve through a strictly political fight and that just has to do with national boundaries, like whether you are your own independent nation, that being sovereignty. It's a much more complex and deeper kind of sovereignty that I heard a lot of Puerto Ricans talking about and a lot of Puerto Ricans who I think identify with the movement for independence. And so I think there's an understanding that in this moment in history, with such an interconnected economy and such an interconnected ecology, right? I mean, Maria, like we have to talk about climate change when we're talking about these storms and that, you know, the pollution in one part of the world plays out as, you know, floodwaters rising and super typhoons and unprecedented storms in another part of the world, right? So what does sovereignty mean in that context? So some of the most interesting political work, and this is the work that we're supporting with the, with the book, with, with Battle for Paradise and all of the royalties going to this coalition of groups called Quinta Gente. They, this is 60 groups that have come together to come up with a really coherent political program that will bring sovereignty to, to Puerto Ricans, but not just, not just political independence. Like it isn't, it isn't framed as a fight for political independence. It's framed as, as a fight for true sovereignty, right? So what does it mean to have independence for their food, to, to never again find that on this incredibly fertile island, there's no food to eat because you're getting you know 90% of your food imported through a single port and that port is knocked out by one storm and suddenly there's no food, right? Or most of the crops are being grown for export and they're monocrops and it all gets wiped out, right? Also energy sovereignty, right? I mean, if you are getting your power through these power plants in the south of the island and they're being pumped, you know, carried through these wires that were knocked down by Maria, that's a very, much more precarious than if you're getting your power from solar, you know, solar panels, you know, on a microgrid in a community. And then if somebody loses their, you know, their roof in the storm, you can get power from somebody else in the microgrid. And if the whole grid goes down, you can unplug from the grid and you have that resiliency. So what I think is most interesting about the way in which Puerto Ricans are responding politically is in this deeper definition of sovereignty. It's not a severing from that long fight for independence. I wouldn't say that at all, but it is something new uh, and I think really, really exciting that learns from the experience of having been abandoned in the way that, that Puerto Ricans have been. You know, one of the things that I think has escaped attention as as people have rightly been focused on Trump denying the deaths of Puerto Ricans is this formulation of Trump and his surrogates coming forward and saying, you know, Trump said, I raised billions of dollars for Puerto Rico. And, you know, his surrogates saying, Trump rebuilt Puerto Rico. And there's this formulation where it's somehow... Like Trump personally did this. It's for the. It's really the first time I've seen disaster response and rebuilding being framed as sort of noblesse oblige of like the monarchical, you know, leader. It is setting up this, I think, increasingly transparent idea that uh, you don't have a, a an inherent right as as a human being to be saved, right? You know, I think we're starting to see an erosion of a rights framework in the context of disasters, and it's becoming framed as a privilege. Trump's position on NAFTA and other 
so-called free trade agreements and uh, the way that he's using tariffs as a kind of cudgel in his, uh, at least in his public pronouncements about how he's going to deal with all sorts of big businesses. Um, I want to ask you a very simple question that probably doesn't have a simple answer. Would Trump's position, if it's fully implemented, be better for workers in the United States and around the world than the existing framework uh, that has been in play since the early 1990s um, under Bill Clinton? He ran attacking the agreements and saying, I'm going to get a better deal, you know, and put America first. That's not actually a trade plan. What it allowed was for people to project their desires onto that blank slate, right? But if you look at who he appointed, it was always clear whose interests he he was going to be fighting for. And it's not, you know, the interests of workers. So no, I mean, I actually think that Trump and his administration could actually come up with worse deals for workers left, you know, left to their own devices. I don't think there's any, I don't think it's a given that just by renegotiating these deals, just by opening them up, we end up with something better. No, I don't. But I, I do think this is this is something that progressives need to look very hard at, right? Because this used to be terrain for progressives. This used to be terrain where you had really large muscular mass movements responding to corporate free trade and putting forward alternatives and and being, you know, very vocal and very out there. And those movements have gradually been contracting. Those coalitions have broken apart. And one of the most interesting parts of that movement, they were international movements, right? Um, They were coalitions across borders. And that kind of international organizing is something that the left really doesn't have right now, not anything as organized. And, and and there's the beginning of a rekindling of a left internationalism, and there's more discussion of it, and Yanis Varoufakis is talking about it, and I was glad to see, I think the DSA is sort of gradually stepping into that. Talk, talking about Democratic Socialists of America, that right at this point now, the most prominent person um, that, that everyone yeah. will have heard of now is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, but again, that uh, institution, that organization has been around for decades. Um, but as p- part of the ricochet effect of the Sanders campaign started getting a lot more attention being paid to it. Um, but th- but they've been around for quite a long time, but there's this sort of rebirth in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think th- there is an urgent need for this resurgent left movement, including its electoral expressions, to say a lot more about foreign policy, including economic foreign policy, and to rebuild some of these alliances across borders. Because if we don't, then these right-wing populists and fascists step into that space. And that has happened in the U.S. with Trump. It happened in France with Marine Le Pen. You know, if you look at what Marine Le Pen, how what she ran on in France and what she'll run on again, it is, you know, anti-globalization. It is the worker left behind. And it's white supremacy. You know, that's that's the brutal cocktail. And same thing with Brexit, right? It was that combination of, you know, the failure of economic globalization mixed with racism and xenophobia, and stir, right? So this territory cannot be ceded by the left. It's always tempting to focus on the sort of the the, the issues closest to home. Um, but I think there's tremendous danger in, in ceding the terrain of internationalism to the right. No, I mean, absolutely. And yes, when you, when you look on the left, like no one is going to say that they oppose 
uh, single payer healthcare, um, mm-hmm. or that they want right. socialized medicine. I mean that that is a firm position when it comes to fights to increase the minimum wage. So you wage talk about the, the safe stuff. When you talk about oh yeah, yeah, and and the safe stuff right now there, there's has changed right, exactly. which is good. Right. I mean, it, you, yeah, it used to be well. Of course, we're all against the war. You know, talking about the Iraq war. Well, now, first of all, there's a there's many wars going on. When you just talk about the militaristic wars, um, and there's big debate on the left about those wars, which again I think is a good thing that there's actual debate, um, but. I don't see how you how you can run electoral campaigns that challenge the this sort of entrenched two-party system when you're going to have a kind of cannibalistic mob, you know, yeah. that eats itself alive at the expense of fighting the actual villains in society. When I sort of zoom out and think about what has happened to discourse on the left and the fact that so much of the discussion is happening in these minuscule little dispatches on Twitter or Facebook, as opposed to deeper dives. And, you know, I don't want to romanticize the the pre-social media discourse. It wasn't perfect by any means. But when you combine that with the fact that these structures are owned and controlled by six guys who are getting richer than we could have ever imagined, right, that we are losing control of our intellectual property um, at the same time as we are feeding this new oligarch class, you know, there's just not nearly enough discussion about our own participation in building systems that are ultimately, you know, I see it as you know, this is the final capitalist enclosure. You know, it began with the enclosures of the commons of the land and the the buying and selling of bodies in the, the first stage of capitalism. And, you know, we've been talking about the stage of neoliberalism, which is about, you know, privatizing state assets. But what we are living and participating in and not debating nearly enough is the privatization of our very selves, the commodification of our relationships, right? And of our movements, because our movements are living in these spaces that are owned and controlled by, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, our movements are worth more than just handing ourselves up so willingly. Naomi Klein, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk with you, Jeremy. Naomi Klein is an award-winning journalist. She is my colleague at The Intercept. She's also the author of several books. Her latest, The Battle for Paradise, Puerto Rico Takes on the Disaster Capitalists, was published by Haymarket Books in cooperation with The Intercept. We should note that all of the royalties for that book, The Battle of Paradise, go to Junta Gente, a network of organizations fighting for solidarity and sustainable Puerto Rico. Visit juntagente.org for more details. That's J-U-N-T-E-G-E-N-T-E dot org. We're going to end today's show with the Puerto Rican artist Ileana Mercedes Cabra Joglar, better known as Ile. When she was just 16 years old, Ileana became part of the internationally renowned and celebrated group Calle 13, which was led by her two older brothers, René and Eduardo. (laughs) 
Back then, Ileana rapped under the moniker PG-13, a nod to her young age. But after 10 years with Calle 13, Ileana decided that it was time to give it a shot on her own. First, there was the name change. She would be known as Ile from now on. And her first album as a solo artist, Ilevitable, which was a contemporary take on classic bolero and salsa songs, some of which were penned by her own grandmother, earned her a Grammy in 2017. Now, a year later, Ile is back in the studio and has a new song to share. It's called Odio, the Spanish word for hate. The music video for that song is an incredible portrayal of a dark event in Puerto Rico's history, the Cerro Maravilla massacre. We'll hear from Ile in a moment about the story of the murder of two pro-independence students at the hands of police and the subsequent cover-up of their deaths with the help of the U.S. government. I should say there's been a rich history of resistance against colonialism in Puerto Rico. And at various points, there have been militant independence movements. The indigenous people, the Taino, fought Spanish colonialists repeatedly. And when the U.S. illegally annexed Puerto Rico, the rebellions continued. The U.S. basically turned Puerto Rico into a plantation for major agribusiness, used its territory for military maneuvers and bomb testing, and at times even made it illegal to wave a Puerto Rican flag. Independentistas tried to assassinate President Truman. They launched an armed attack in the U.S. Congress. And eventually there were multiple guerrilla resistance groups that had taken up arms against the U.S. government and military in the name of Puerto Rican independence. The U.S., of course, waged its own dirty wars against these independence leaders and groups. But overwhelmingly, Washington has used economic and political weapons to maintain Puerto Rico's colonial status. The question of independence is a complicated debate in Puerto Rico to this day, but our guest is clear where she stands. She's explicit in her support for an independent Puerto Rico. Here is Ile's story. Bueno, my name is Ileana. My artistic name is Ile, and I'm from Puerto Rico. I grew up uh, in a big family. I'm the little one. Uh, they call me the sponge because I absorbed a lot of things from them, from my parents, ideals to the musical taste. I remember waking up every time listening to music, salsa singers like Hector Lavoe. <laughs> Juan Luis Guerra, that he's from the Dominican Republic. I remember when I was little, I loved to imitate things that I hear people singing. And uh, one day my brother, René, picked me up from school and, and he said, 
I want you to sing something that I'm, I'm doing with Eduardo, my other brother. And he put me the song in the car and I say, well, do this chorus like Christina Aguilera. <laughs> Chorus like La Lupe, that is a Cuban singer. And he said, Now do it like yourself. And I said, I don't know how to do it like myself. I don't, I don't know how to sing. And he said, Yes, you do. Find a way. <laughs> so that's when the song La Guacatona, that was the song that he was showing me. A lot of people expected that I was going to do rap because of my brother's music, but I've always felt like that was my brother's project. And I've always loved uh, salsa, boleros, and I've always loved especially women in, in songs. So for me, it was important to express myself through this music that I feel so identified with, and it's part of who I am and where I come from. Hay un triángulo en el espacio abierto de mis concavidades. Tengo hilos. Because we've tried so hard to transform music and and do something new, we start forgetting about our roots and our musical history. But it has been a lot of things uh, in our history. In armed clashes in Puerto Rico, 23 are killed, 15 of them policemen. Trouble broke out when agitators launched attacks on the governor's palace, police stations and other public buildings. Though the island has virtual self-government, hotheads want to sever all connection with America. We had the Ponce massacre, we had the Rio Piedras massacre. So in 1978, Cerro Maravilla became the most famous one because it was a cover-up from the government of Puerto Rico, but as well as the government of the United States. Basically, the story was these two young students from the University of Puerto Rico. 23-year-old Arnaldo Rosado and 18-year-old Carlos Soto were the two who were killed. They belonged to a radical group called the Armed Revolutionary Movement, which wanted independence for Puerto Rico rather than the Commonwealth status it has now. They suddenly met also a young guy. He was like 20 years old. He studied in a school, but since he wanted to be a policeman, they like said, okay, well, you, you can do this. That third man was Gonzalez Malave, a police undercover agent who had infiltrated the group and led Rosado and Soto to the ambush. They actually thought that this guy was a good guy. July 25th, 1978, marked the 80th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico. And Soto and Rosado came up here to this mountaintop called Cerro Maravilla, where the transmission towers of a local television station are located. Supposedly they were going to burn uh, communication towers just to make a statement like, oh, we want freedom for our country. 
But instead of bombs, their knapsack contained barbecue starters, matches, and these homemade handcuffs. The whole police group knew everything, so it was like an ambush. And when they arrived there, the policemen started to shoot. They started a shooting. The police, Puerto Rico's Justice Department, and the governor claimed the two alleged terrorists had been shot by police in self-defense. The only purpose by that time for the police was to kill independents. Uh, because uh, by that time, uh, the government was the statehood political party. The Puerto Rican Senate concluded the two had been executed and that the facts in the case had been kept from the public in a massive cover-up by government agencies in Puerto Rico. They also claimed that the U.S. Justice Department, including the FBI, went along with the cover-up. They did three investigations where they were all covered. All of those investigations came to the same conclusion. Rosado and Soto were terrorists who had planned to blow up the communications towers. They had attacked the police who then killed them in self-defense. Everything that goes on in Puerto Rico, the United States has a lot to do with it. The U.S. Justice Department did indict 10 policemen in the shooting of Rosado and Soto, but only after the truth of the killings and the cover-up were disclosed in the Senate hearing. And those indictments were for perjury. The important thing is that how hate was involved here inside these policemen uh, and how they hate made them do these violent, horrible uh, things. We in Puerto Rico are living so much humiliation since being a colony of the United States and being a colony for so many years. We've never had a moment where we were a free country. It has been decades of a lot of abuse and so much abuse that we start believing it and we start believing that we are capable and believe that we, we are not worthy and we need someone else to be ourselves. Now, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack because we've spent a lot of money on Puerto Rico, and that's fine. We've saved a lot of lives. If you look at the... I, I lived the whole Hurricane Maria. I was there in my house, and it was observing everything, you know, the, the changes, the people talking, the people reacting. I had to wake up every morning wondering what can I do now, where can I go, who needs food, who needs water, who needs uh, solar energy, what, what can we do to make it so this cannot happen again, or if, it, or if this happens again, what can we do to help, our, help ourselves? And it's something hard to do, but it's not impossible. Uh, so I hope Puerto Rico becomes an independent country. I think that younger people in Puerto Rico are more conscious than my generation that is still young. Uh, but that makes me feel hopeful. This song, I hope, is a way to make people at least question what should we do with ourselves and try to at least find ways to help each other.
corazón Mientras seamos carnada Banquete pal comelón Soy la respuesta perdida esa que siempre quisiste, todo lo que no pudiste, soy tu razón obstruida, soy de tu pecho el vacío, el corazón carcomido, la inconsciencia en tu oído, el miedo que no ha dormido, llevo el puñal en mis ojos, cuidado que no te mire, de muertos hago un desfile, si de momento me enojo, tengo bruta la tristeza y puedo hacer cualquier cosa, el dolor ya no me acosa, quiero explotar mi cabeza. That was the Puerto Rican artist Ile. She spoke to our producer, Jack Desidoro. That does it for this week's show. One note, next week we are going to be having a special guest on, Noam Chomsky. You're not going to want to miss that. If you're not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro. And our executive producer is Lital Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.